Acts chapter 4. You recall from Acts chapter 3 how Peter and John, in the name of the Lord Jesus, had been the, uh, the immediate instruments by which Christ had healed the man who had been born lame, and he had been manifestly made whole, and they'd taken the opportunity then to preach concerning the power of God in Christ and the grace that God had shown uh, in the, uh, the porch called Solomon's there at the temple in Jerusalem. And then it was as they were beginning to press these things into the hearts of the people who had gathered that the, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. That's chapter 4 and verse 1. And they being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's seek God's face. Lord God, these records of your dealings through men and with men are thrilling our souls. Oh God, will you grant tonight then that we may not just read these things, not just hear these things, but feel the truth that is portrayed here in the depths of our being. Oh God, by your spirit, working in preacher and in hearers, grant that we may know Christ better. We ask it through his name. Amen. I confess to being entranced by the histories that we are studying from the book of the Acts. These things are exhilarating. They are delightful. The transformation that we have seen from the, the last few chapters of Luke's Gospel into the first few chapters of the book of the Acts. Men who had before been uh, fearful and feeble, now marked by both conviction and action, is wonderful to see. And it is not so much the transformation that is delightful as the transformer, for this is the work of God by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
These then are men upon whom the Spirit has been poured out, and it is in his power that they are conducting this work. Now we want to try and trace out then some of these things, uh, not doing it so slowly that we lose momentum, but not doing it so quickly that we're obliged to overlook rich detail. And we're looking then at the way that battle is joined. This is the first wave of persecution, uh, outright and open, in the light of the preaching of the apostles. And it's come down really to this. It's the Sanhedrin versus the apostles at this point. You've got it there in verse 6. Who is gathering together? Well, you've got not only the rulers and the elders and the scribes, but with that group, with the ruling council in Jerusalem of the Jewish nation, the Sanhedrin, you've got Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest gathering together at Jerusalem. They're bringing out the heavies. This, this is a, a difficult situation to be in. And they're bringing them into the midst of these men. Now, it's a situation that is in some ways designed to intimidate. Remember, they've been arrested in the temple. They've been kept in custody overnight. We're not told at this point what they were doing, although I think we can imagine, given the history, some of what they would have been doing in the, the hours in which they were uh, in, in whatever prison they were kept. But now they're brought into this area where, where probably the Sanhedrin is gathered in a semicircle. And they're, they're there in the middle. So you've got this intimidating crowd, the Jewish elders and scribes and priests, including the most influential and prominent men in their number who are gathered to interrogate the apostles. Now, that's not just intimidating because it's intimidating to be in the presence of so many august and important men. It's also the same council that condemned the Lord Jesus to death. And now they're having their first opportunity to get their hands on the apostles as well. They aimed at Christ in their estimation. They have hit him and now they've set their sights on his followers. We will follow the pressing question that they ask by looking at the potent answer that is given by the apostles. The pressing question is the one that is recorded at the end of chapter 4 and verse 7. By what power or by what name have you done this? By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, it's not the first time this question has been raised. If you were to go back to Luke chapter 20, it happened on one of those days as Christ taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. There's a lot of overlap here between the experience of Christ and his followers that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? 
Peter's already had to divert attention away from himself and John when the healing was carried out in the temple by saying in Acts chapter 3 and verse 12, why do you marvel at this or look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And then again in verse 16, his name through faith in his name has made this man strong. So you've always got this issue that seems to be bubbling under, whether it's directed at Christ or whether or not the disciples are having to say it's not us. And now in the Sanhedrin, by what name or by what power have you done this? It seems to be a common, constant question. Where does the power and authority to carry out such deeds and to speak such words come from? The Sanhedrin are essentially asking then, how can this happen? Who do you represent? Where does your strength come from for such works as these? And there seems to be in the question a, a sort of a mingled fear and arrogance. And so often those two things blend together. So you could put that quite strong emphasis. By what power or what name has this been done by you, by people like you? Who gave you the right to do these things? Who's put you in this position? Where did you get this strength, this name? It's quite possible that they're essentially fishing for a confession that opens the door for condemnation. That perhaps they, they want them to say we're doing it in the name of Jesus because if they've already condemned Jesus then they've got a way to uh, get their hands on the apostles' throats. By what power or by what name have you done this? Where does this come from? Who's really at work here? What is going on in a situation like this? My friends... I think, and I in fact hope, that this question is still raised by the Church of Jesus Christ today. Not raised by us, but raised, if you will, concerning us. Some of you have had to deal with this in your own households, in your own families. Speaking to somebody last week, talking about when they first professed faith in Christ, the antagonism that they felt from their family. Bewilderment sometimes distaste or, or disgust this this idea that that is current in our society that well maybe you got a little bit religious but but now you're really overdoing it recognizing a transformed life and it's bewildering it's troubling sometimes it makes people afraid because it's something that it can, they cannot control in the arrogance of human unbelief there's this pushing back against the reality of a life that has been transformed by the power of God. And this miracle that has taken place in Jerusalem, in the same way as the reality of the miracle of salvation in our lives, considered individually or perhaps congregationally, when people come into a, to a church like ours and many of those which we know, and they're bamboozled. It's, it's, they, they don't understand why we are who and what we are how a congregation like this can hold together why there's affection and, and kindness and, and service and mutual love one toward a what is this what, what, almost what witchcraft is this but what magic is this 
How do these things happen? What binds you and holds you together? It's the question that transformed lives provoke. Do we provoke the question as much as we should? If not to us, at least about us. When do people ask us for a reason for the hope that is within us? Do people see the life that we lead? And perhaps they don't know us before. And so all they see is something that is distinctive. And as one of the other Bible writers says, they think it's strange that we do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. What makes you different? Why don't you have the appetites we have? Why don't you have the desires that we have? Or perhaps they knew you before and now they, they know you as a changed man or woman. Perhaps they'll say, you, you, you know, you, you're not what you used to be. And they often phrase, you're not as much fun as you used to be. We don't, we, we, don't, we don't enjoy being around you. What has changed you? What power or what name has done this to you? Brothers and sisters, we should not be ashamed to provoke such a question. It's not an easy question to handle. It's not always an easy question for us to answer. But praise God if we're counted worthy in that measure to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because when the world comes up against this kind of spiritual reality, it's a threat to them. And so in arrogance and in fear, they will often respond, where does this come from? What's going on? Who gives you the right to speak in this way? What makes you so certain? By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, Peter gives an answer to this challenge. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to speak. I think it would be far too easy for us just to brush over that introductory description and get into the substance of what Peter says. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit said to them now again we're going back to things that the lord christ has already promised his disciples and the overlap again is very plain very distinct in luke chapter 12 verses 11 and 12 the lord christ has been talking about them confessing him before men now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities now, that's not guesswork that's more or less a promise when when they do the very thing that is now happening in acts chapter 4 do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say and peter who i suspect has been praying and praising through the night in some measure, uh, perhaps frustrating his captors by getting a reasonably good night's sleep when he should be more scared than he, uh, he seems to be, speaks as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter makes confession, but not in the sense that they expect. Peter confesses the name of Jesus Christ. And again, you've got then this beautiful fulfilment of what our Lord gave assurance of in John's Gospel in chapter 15. 
verse 18 and following. This is what he said. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He might well have said, if they ask me a question, they'll ask you the same question. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from me, from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And I'm not persuaded at all that the apostles at this point, if they're thinking like this, are thinking, oh no, this is what he said was going to happen. I would imagine they're thinking, this is the chance. This is our opportunity. This is what our Lord said would happen. Not that we delight in this persecution, but he has promised that these things will come to pass. And it is when these things come to pass that we will know the help of the Holy Spirit. That we will be given grace and wisdom, a sort of a heavenly wit and understanding in that very moment to speak and to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's not only warned us this will happen, he's given us assurance that when it does, he himself will be with us. And it will be our privilege not only to suffer with our master, but to speak on his behalf. I don't know how many layers there are in Peter's mind at a time like this. I wonder if there's any sense in which he's thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do next. I wonder what I'm going to say now. I wonder what connections are going to be made in the moment. I wonder how under the, the influence of these various forces and with the power of the Holy Spirit, I will be made able now to speak, looking in the faces of men who only a few days before, a few weeks previously, from whose faces I have fled. This then is a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And as such, in accordance with the promise of his risen Saviour, able now to declare the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we'll come back to that. But that title, that combination of names, that's horribly offensive to the people before whom he stands. Jesus the Saviour, the Christ, the Anointed One of God, the man from Nazareth. You couldn't run together a combination of names and titles which would be more forceful in response to the question, by what name or power have you done these things? And you notice how polite they are. 
You understand that when people attack you, it annoys them intensely when you are polite. Now, I'm not saying that's why they are polite, but, but it's, you, know, you should be fearful. Or, or, or why don't you respond to us the way that we're attacking you? Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. He knows who they are. The same sort of spirit of Daniel's friends. Nebuchadnezzar, great king. They're not embarrassed to acknowledge that these men have been put where they are by God and to show them the respect to which they are entitled as men made in God's image and as officers or rulers and elders among the people. Very polite and utterly unapologetic. Doesn't back down an inch. Doesn't step back once. No defending no compromise, no apologising, no trying to spin this in order to minimise the offence and try and create a bit of space within which they can wriggle around. But he makes known Jesus Christ. What a change the Holy Spirit's operations make in the life of a man like Peter. The denier of Jesus scared by the repeated charges made by a servant girl, now stands with the Sanhedrin all around him, their angry faces looking toward him, and declares the name of Jesus of Nazareth as the saviour of sinners. Let's look at what he highlights in his wonderful response, this potent answer that he gives. First of all, he wants them to understand the compassion of Christ and there's a little bit of sarcasm here if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well then let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth this man stands here before you whole now we hinted at this before the callousness of these elders and scribes and priests is striking, bordering on the cruel. There's a man who's never been able to walk, and he can walk. And such is the impact in him that he is leaping and he is praising the Lord God. You always imagine shaking his legs in front of people and saying, look, they work. And it's almost as this has been completely overlooked. The fact that this man has been made well has become the occasion of persecution. There's no celebration in their hearts. There's no delight. There seems to be barely any recognition. Later on, they've got to acknowledge. Well, I suppose we, ha we have to say, we can't deny it. The man's standing right in front of us. Where's even what we sometimes call the milk of human kindness? Where's the sort of the natural happiness that someone who has been so suffering has been relieved from their suffering? And Peter underlines it. In the name of Jesus Christ, this good deed has been done. So look at this man. Think about what has taken place. How ironic it is that they should be so het up about such mercy bestowed. How unjust that they should, in effect, challenge divine kindness. These people who think of themselves as the defenders of God's honour and glory. Who gave you the right to make this crippled man walk again? 
When you you put it like that, the whole question just seems so twisted, doesn't it? No, this is Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He has had compassion. He has shown mercy. He has done good. And you men cannot even see these mercies. Again, it's like you saying to somebody, do you you realise how happy God has made me? Do you realise what peace I have found? Do you understand what joy fills my heart having been reconciled to God? Yeah, but you're not what you used to be. Isn't it wonderful? Not to them, not to the Sanhedrin. And again, it's the same kind of assault that they made upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They were ready to stone him. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, having declared his identity with the Father, and he asked them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those good works do you want to stone me? This ugly hatred. And Peter counters it first with the compassion of the Christ. Look at this good deed that has been done to a helpless man. And you're asking, really, aren't you? Who made him well? Who did him good? Who blessed him? Peter's already turning it back upon them. The compassion of Christ is prominent in his answer. So is the power of Christ. Let it be known to you all, verse 10, and to all the people of Israel... That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. He's been genuinely and wonderfully healed. He has been fully delivered in the name of this Jesus. There is no frailty left in him, And again, you know how Luke, who, who often brings in these if you like, medical details, these particular emphases that a, a doctor would perhaps uh, notice in a particular way. He's emphasised that this man has never been able to walk. In verse 7 of chapter 3, he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, not just standing up, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. The emphasis is on the completeness, on the the excellence, on the majesty of the cure that has been accomplished. And it's not immediately obvious, perhaps as we read it, but the, the, the idea of salvation is here in this word wholeness. Peter's going to use it again when he talks about the salvation that comes in the name of Jesus Christ. And those parallels are important. Those parallels are deliberate. He says, yes, this man has been made well and it was a deed of kindness. And he has been made completely well in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There is nothing left that this man needs. His humanity has been wonderfully transformed by the power about which you are asking. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then he speaks too of the resurrection of this Christ. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man stands here before you. Who is he? 
He's the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now, I suspect that most negotiators, most uh, conflict mediators, if they'd been trying to coach Peter, would have their heads in their hands at this point. When you're standing in the semicircle of the Sanhedrin, Peter, and when you're fighting for what may prove to be your life, what you don't do, what you should never do, is tell them that they're the ones who crucified the man in whose name this good deed has been carried out. It's just not wise, Peter. Don't draw attention to the things that they've done wrong. Find some common ground. Make it work nicely. Don't offend these people. Don't, don't stir their consciences. This is a red rag to a bull, Peter. This is pouring petrol on the flames. Why are you agitating the situation? Nonsense. Peter's a preacher of the gospel and these men and women, or men in the Sanhedrin, these men need to understand that the Jesus upon whom they laid hands and whom they delivered over to the Romans, that the, the, the motive force behind this whole sequence came from the Jewish council. You crucified Jesus and God raised him from the dead. Now, brothers and sisters, doesn't that tell us something about the way that we should talk to people? Now, remember, they've been very polite. They've been very straightforward. But there's no pulling of punches. There's no playing safe. He was crucified at your hands, this man whom God vindicated by raising him from the dead. They don't leave these things out. They don't draw back. They don't put a blunt edge on the blade. They don't take off the point. This is not some play sword with a retractable blade. You crucified the Lord of glory. This isn't the first time Peter's done this. Over and over again when he speaks in Jerusalem. My saviour died here. You took and with lawless hands and put to death God's Lord and Christ. Peter puts before their eyes in sharpest focus the contrast between their estimation of Jesus and God's estimation of Jesus. Is that what we're encouraged to do when we gospel people today? Aren't we in effect often told find some common ground? Build, build up slowly. I'm not speaking about rudeness or aggression. I'm talking about apostolic straightforwardness. Who is Jesus Christ? Is he God's Lord? God's appointed Messiah? The saviour of sinners? Or would you in effect be one of those who deride him, dismiss him, reject him, even crucify him? This is the point of division. Who is this Jesus? He is Jesus the Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He has been fully vindicated. Whatever you may think, whatever falsehood you may be clinging to, whatever blindness still clouds your eyes, 
God has made plain who this Jesus is by raising him from the dead. What Paul would later say, declaring him to be the son of God with power. The resurrection of Christ is front and centre. The identity of Christ. Verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. The stone that you despised, the stone that you scorned, is the stone of God's own choosing. Now, in some senses, he's making a very similar point to the one about Christ's resurrection, but he's doing so in a particular way. He is quoting one of the Psalms that is quoted often in the New Testament. It's Psalm 118 and verse 22. The psalmist writes, The stone which, was, which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. Now, what were the last occasions on which Psalm 118 was used in the New Testament? Luke 19 and Luke 20. Luke 19 and verse 38. As the Lord Christ goes up, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then in 20, 9 to 19, the parable of the wicked vine dressers, the one where the, the, the owner of the vineyard sends his servants and they're treated shamefully, they're beaten, they're sent away. At last he sends the beloved son. Come, let's kill him, this heir, that the inheritance may be ours. And the vineyard owner he will come and bring his judgments upon those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And Christ looked at these men and said, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. Perhaps some of this starts to make sense of what we'll come to in verse 13. They realised that they had been with Jesus. They sound like him. They stand like him. They reason like him. They speak like him. They've got the same nobility of bearing as him. They manifest the same calm courage as him. These are the Jesus men. And they've learned from the man who taught them. They're walking in his footsteps. And here's Peter. And again and again we've seen Peter and the others learning the lessons of the way that the Lord Jesus has handled the Old Testament scriptures. And now Peter uses against the Sanhedrin the very same text from Psalm 118 that our Lord had used to demonstrate God's choosing of him, that the son, that the owner sends, is the one whom God has appointed. Yes, the workers in the vineyard despise him and cast him out, but he is the one whom God has chosen for the building up of his temple. And Peter now is, if you will, giving Christ's commentary on Psalm 118 to the Sanhedrin. Here is the man that you opposed, 
but he is the man that God has upheld. You crucified him. That's the stone that the builders rejected. But God has raised him from the dead. That's the man that God has made his chief cornerstone. He's not pandering to their fear and arrogance. They're going to be more afraid and more proud by the end of this, tragically, than they were at the beginning. But Peter says, God is building his temple. God is establishing his kingdom. And he's doing it by the very man whom you denied, scorned, betrayed, handed over to the Romans, for whose blood you bade, at whose crucifixion you rejoiced. God has raised him from the dead. And it's a fearful charge. Because this stone is not rejected by people who are wandering around at a distance. He's rejected by the builders. Peter stands before the Sanhedrin and he says, you had a responsibility to recognise and welcome Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ of God. And you crucified the Lord of glory. But God has raised him from the dead. And not all your hatred and not all your antagonism can for one moment hinder the progress of the kingdom of God. You saw him and you saw no beauty in him. You wanted nothing to do with him. But God has made him the first, the chief, the organising block and principle in the building that he has established. His kingdom is coming and no one and nothing can stand against him. And that brings Peter then to the salvation of Christ. Because Peter's a real preacher. He's not simply a Bible thinker or a Bible talker. And so he comes to a practical conclusion. Peter doesn't leave this. If you thought he's been direct up to this point, this is when Peter thinks he starts getting direct. This is when Peter says, now, yeah, just in case you didn't get it up to this point, just in case you, you might have imagined I was talking uh, theoretically or, or making reference to other people, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is what all this teaching about Christ has been driving toward. This is the compassionate Christ. The one who does good to the needy. This is the mighty Christ in whose name men can be made whole. This is the resurrected Christ, the one whom God has raised from the very grave and declared to be his son. This is that Christ who is the chief cornerstone in the building of God. And out of relation to him, there can be no participation in the kingdom of the Most High. Nor then is there salvation in any other. There are no other cornerstones in the temple of God. There is no other resurrected man. There is no other name by which sinners like me and you can be saved from our sins. There is no other one who is so full not only of compassion but of the might to make a man whole. 
And neither then can there be salvation in anybody else because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What is Peter's conclusion? That all these things being so, in this man alone, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is found the salvation of God. That in the whole world, consider it as far as you wish. Think of every sect and teaching. Think of all the centuries that have passed before this and since this. That salvation, wholeness, healing, not just of the body, but of the very soul. This comes through the name of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only absolute and supreme exclusivity and this was just as offensive when Peter spoke it as it is in what we like to call our modern pluralistic age my friends this statement sweeps away all the boasts and all the follies of this fallen world parachute into any period of time drop into any place or space think of every system every teaching every conviction every god so called and lord so called other than jesus christ of nazareth and there is no life there is no light there is no help there is no peace there is no joy in any other name not buddha not confucius not Allah, not Mohammed, none of the gods so-called, the fake and the false religions of this world, not in any of man's philosophies, not in any of man's systems, not in any of man's teachings, not in all the psychologists and psychoanalysts and psychiatrists in the world will you find what Jesus Christ of Nazareth gives to sinners like me and you. It is him and only him. He is not one among many. He is the one. He is the saviour. He is the risen Lord. He is the chief corner stone. There is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. And Peter says if you are going to be saved you must have God's mercy on God's terms. Somebody posted a review of their church online a few days ago. It's one of the downsides of advertising online. Once you're up there on Google or whatever it may be, people get the chance to put a Google review on there. And somebody had been very offended because they'd gone to this particular church and horror of horrors, they'd given them a one-star review out of five. Because by the end of the sermon, it sounded like they didn't think that Buddhism was a valid and viable system. And the pastor put it out and said, I think they're starting to get the message. We've had people come here and, and, and put similar things. Somebody came in and, and they left before we'd even got very far. I can't remember who it was, spoke to them. And I'm not saying it was that person's fault. If I remember correctly, they were asked, well, how many women are going to be involved in the, in the leading and the preaching today? And the answer was none. That was it. 
they were out the door. Because the feminine other was not being properly represented in the church. I thought I said, look around. <laughs> look around at the family of God. But we know our roles, we know our places. My friends, the world is always going to give the preaching of the gospel a one-star review until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to behold the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. And yet in our world, what's the worst thing that someone can do? Let's give you a one-star review. They didn't like me. Did you read John 15? Says Christ. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now it stings, doesn't it? It stings when the door gets slammed in your face. It's not pleasant when the crowd is against you. It's painful when you are rejected, when you are dismissed, when you are scorned. But what do you know, Christian? What have you become persuaded of? That there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved or by which you can be saved. And that's why we're telling you about him. Because the stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. The man that the, the Jews and the Romans crucified, God has raised him from the dead. And in just the same way, as this Jesus gave to this man the perfect wholeness that you see before you, so he can save all those who call upon his name. Do you remember, not many years before, when the Lord had first been dealing with Peter, and he asked them, will you also go away? Do you remember what conclusion Peter reached and expressed? Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And having learned that for himself, Peter is in effect saying the same thing to the Sanhedrin. To whom else will you go? He has the words of eternal life. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. And the same power that was at work in this man is the same power, the same compassion held out by the same Saviour even to the sinners of the Sanhedrin even to people like us. Let me close by asking four brief questions. How well do you know this Christ? Are we grasping the truth of Scripture? Psalm 118 is not so difficult to find. I mean, sometimes you might say, well, I'm not sure I could have done what our Lord did in the wilderness and dig those three texts out of the midst of Deuteronomy. But my friends, so much of the truth of who Christ is lies on the surface of our Bibles. It's not beyond the capacity of any 
faithful child of God to explain who our Jesus is. From the Old and from the New Testament. How well do we know him? If we were put on the spot in some measure, are the Bibles that we have in our hands really at our fingertips? Can you turn to the appropriate portions or do you have them in your mind and in your heart so that when prompted, when given opportunity, you're able to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ? How well do you know him? How much do you esteem him? Will you speak of him because he is all in all to you? Are you persuaded, as Peter was, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the crucified man, is God's Lord, God's Messiah? That he is indeed the chief cornerstone? That he is the king in his kingdom? That he is the good shepherd of the sheep? That he himself is the temple of God. That he is the head of the body. That he is the redeemer of his elect. That he is the delight of the hosts of heaven. That he is the joy of his church. That he is the beloved of our souls. That he is chief among 10,000 to us. Because, my friends, if we don't love him, we'll back off. It's not, in that sense, courage, raw courage that keeps Peter standing there. It's, it's not Peter's confidence in his own native brilliance of mind. It's love for his saviour that holds him there in the midst of the Sanhedrin in all their hostility, elevating and declaring the person of his Jesus. How well do you know this Christ? How much do you esteem this Christ? How far do you trust this Christ? There is no salvation in anyone but him. Neither is there any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Has that become your persuasion? This name, all others, must survive. No other name can rival his. I need no supplements. I need no alternatives. I need no safety nets. Jesus saves sinners. And Christ has saved me. I trust him implicitly, absolutely, entirely, and cheerfully. He is my saviour and my Lord. Because like those other men who stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, you've got the fire, Nebuchadnezzar, and it's in your prerogative to throw us into the flames. But you need to know this. God can save us. But if he chooses not to, it doesn't make any difference. That may not be too far away. Peter, you see, has grasped some of these things, hasn't he? Peter's repeating now things that Christ has said to him. 
Could it be in the back of his mind that Christ said to him that you need to be ready to take up your cross and follow me? But Peter's been made whole. And Peter is able to say to these men, in effect, you can take my life, but you cannot take my Christ. He is saving me, and I trust him for my salvation. So, brothers and sisters, how clearly do we declare Christ? Have we been too much squeezed by this world into a, a lack of clarity and distinctness? We tell ourselves we're being wise. We assure ourselves we're being careful. We tell ourselves we're, we're in it for the long haul. We're playing the long game. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to close the door. And you notice we're not saying that you go out there rudely with an unrighteous aggression. But when Peter's put on the spot, Peter simply preaches a Christ who was crucified and who rose again for the justification of his people. No dilution, no diversion. And he preaches that to the people who put him to death. Am I ready to make him known to the scorners? Are you ready to speak of Jesus to the despisers? Not to try and play some game where you can finally work your way round to saying something about this man called Jesus. I, I honestly sometimes think that the, the obsession of the modern church with apologetics is simply a, a highfalutin way of being cowards. Tell them about Jesus. You might say, how? How will I know this Christ? How can I love this Christ? How can I trust Christ like Peter trusted him? How can I speak of him in anything like the clarity and the purity of Peter's declaration? I take you back to verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke. This is not some kind of superstitious, magical thing, but this is something that is distinctive and responsive. The Holy Spirit has been given. Why did Peter need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because he needed grace and strength in this moment. He has the Spirit, and he also receives the Spirit. And under the sweet influences of the third person of the Godhead, Peter speaks from Scripture and experience of the Jesus whom he knows. And enjoying the immediate operations of the Holy Ghost, Peter's heart is flooded with such a delight for Christ that without embarrassment he can stand in that crowd and declare his saviour. Peter knows so much of the, the Spirit's operation and influence that I honestly am persuaded that without a shadow of a doubt, Peter can say, neither is there salvation in any other, 
for there is no other name. And Peter's not second-guessing. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't exaggeration. This is conviction from a man who knows his Saviour. And it is by the Spirit then that Peter is made able to declare Jesus Christ. You've heard Peter on the day of Pentecost. You've heard Peter in Solomon's porch. Now you've heard Peter before the Sanhedrin. The best phrase I could come up with to describe this is a holy monomania. He's taken up with one thing. No, with one man. Over and over and over again. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Lord. The Saviour. And the purity and the potency of God's truth. Coming with such clarity and simplicity. From a man filled with the Holy Spirit. Is what we still need today. Brothers and sisters, do you pray that God would fill your pastor with the Holy Spirit? When we go out on the streets, God willing, next Saturday, will you pray that those who go may be filled with the Holy Spirit? Perhaps when you go home this evening, will you pray that God would fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit? That we may speak of Jesus Christ the way Peter spoke. Not because we are apostles. Not because we're living in the first century. Not because Jerusalem is some kind of heavenly hotspot. But because the same God who saved these men is saving us. That the same Christ who redeemed these men from the tomb. From the grave. From the pit. That the same spirit who was poured out at Pentecost. That this same God, Father, Son and Spirit is our God. Our Saviour. Our Helper. And in his strength and by his grace. We may speak with apostolic clarity. Apostolic purity. And apostolic potency. And that God by his grace can make the same words about the same man which were preached then as fruitful and as useful today. It's still the pressing question. Where do you get this stuff? How do you do these things? Where do these changed lives come from? Where is this transformed reality find its source? And our answer is the same answer that Peter gave. That Jesus you despise... That Nazarene you scorn? That man who was crucified 2,000 years ago? God raised him from the dead. He is the chief cornerstone in the temple of the Most High. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may...